Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome back. It is still Thursday, the 26th of August. And um, and I have to tell you that every single week between the 5850 mark and the 804, well, the 704 mark, right? Like, so those, between those two periods of time, it's possible that some of the funniest conversations happen. Um, and I recognize that they happen off air, but it's because Peter Kapsner is like already either on the phone or in this case in studio. And um, yeah, he's he is all wound up and ready to go today. So let me just lead off with a couple of headlines before we jump to our conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner, because I found this juxtaposition of headlines very interesting this morning. So you have uh, heard in the in the top of the hour news about the church in Sutherland Springs Texas, you remember this story um, where a gunman um, entered in and it just was a horrible mass shooting in 2017. Uh, the The building has been preserved for a period of time, um, four years, right, uh, so that folks could honor the lives lost. So inside there are these 26 chairs that represent the 26 congregants who were killed um each of those chairs bears the name of a victim and so at at some point though like right it you get to the place where it's time to move beyond death to newness of life and there is a new sanctuary the congregation is already worshiping in the new sanctuary um and they took a majority vote to tear down the old building And so I think it has sparked a conversation about, you know, like, right, do we preserve monuments forever um, or how long do we preserve monuments? Whose choice is it to tear something down? Which leads me to juxtapose that headline out of Sutherland Springs, Texas, with one out of California, where California legislators have voted to replace uh, the statue of the Roman Catholic priest who established the California mission system. He who's actually uh, the first saint canonized on U.S. soil by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And so that monument, that statue, stood outside the California um, State House for years. Um, And the uh, California Assembly um, has now removed the statutory requirement for the Capitol to maintain this statue of Father Unipero Serra and replace it with a mandate to install a work of art that commemorates the indigenous people on whose land California sits. And I juxtapose those because um, you are going to hear conservative media today suggest that absolutely the people in the Church of Sutherland Springs, uh, Texas, have every right to tear that building down. It's on their land. Um, It's their building. They don't want to maintain it anymore, and they have every right to demolish it. They have replaced it with a new sanctuary. 
Um, and you're going to hear the same conservative media say there's no way that the California Assembly has any right to uh, replace a statue that was demolished by vandals. I mean, I recognize that um, and and change the law of California and replace that with a mandate to install a work of art that commemorates the indigenous people on whom on whose land California now sits. So just listen carefully and say to yourself, hey, those two stories are about the same thing. Those two stories are about the same thing. I mean, there's a guy who um, is going to demolish Phil Collins' former estate in Miami. I mean, can you get all worked up about that? No, because that guy bought the land. It's his land. He gets to do with it what he wills. Um, uh, Somebody bought the old Grand Prospect Hall Opera House in New York City, and they're going to demolish it to make way for something else. And I didn't really hear anybody, I didn't, I didn't hear anybody rail two weeks ago when a historic church in Seattle was torn down, demolished to make way for affordable housing. Nobody, nobody raised a stink about that. Why? Because it was a church that has been empty and defunct for a really long time. All right, there you go. That's my commentary about demolishing things and building new things and how things change and construction and deconstruction and reconstruction, which at my house normally includes Legos. Peter Kapsner is up next. We'll be right back. Peter Kapsner is back. It's the first day of school. He is all wound up. He's got a new outfit on. Later today, he's going to take his <laughs> no, little he picture doesn't. with his little no, sheet he of paper. He does not. Paul, there's oh, no, no new no, outfit. No, no. I've seen that shirt before yeah. many times. <laughs> I think I bought this shirt at Target maybe in the 1970s. So, you know, I'm that classic professor that never changes their outfit at this point. But I am all wound up. I get Over the next four hours, Carmen, so I get exciting. to meet 60 new young people <gasps> over two classes. One is a class on Christian social ethics and the other is on human sexuality. And I cannot wait. It's so fun. Okay. So, you know, now I get to do like the the Jesus juke and say, okay, but surely, surely you put on Christ this morning, right? <laughs> so over everything, there would be love, like, right? We're going to go into our classroom. I know you did. I, know I you did. did. In fairness, I literally, when I woke up this morning at 4.16 and could not go back to sleep because I was so excited. <laughs> so I'm a little hyped up on adrenaline coffee and lack of sleep, but I literally did spend some time and I said, all right, God, where do you want me to start with them today? Because every class is a different journey. I don't teach according to a set... Um, uh, curriculum. Obviously, we're going to cover the subjects, but I really do try to listen to the students and their needs and then cover the ground in a, in a unique way for each class. And it's so fun, Carmen. They really are lovely young people. You do have a syllabus, though, right? A reading list of some <laughs> the syllabus kind. is I mean, primarily like, a more, suggestion have, of what might happen. You have a plan, right? Yeah, oh, I do have That's a plan, but it's just I do tell them it's a suggestion of what is likely to happen over the next three and a half months. So it's, it's Which so is fun. the way, so I send Peter these ideas, Paul and I send Peter these ideas for what we might talk about when he comes on air. And sometimes we get to it and sometimes we don't. Indeed. And so, yeah, there you go. Um, Nadia Boltz Weber has been installed as the ELCA, that's the Evangelical which is a misplaced word in this context, uh, but the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. So Nadia Boltz Weber has been installed as the ELCA's first pastor of public witness. Um, I want to talk about who she is, who she's now speaking on behalf of, and what what is public witness. And so let's just start with who is she 
um, because that is maybe the most interesting part of the conversation. Yeah, you know, she burst on the scene, I want to say, somewhere in the last uh, six to eight years. I remember when some of her books about um, being, she, she was running a church called The House for Sinners and Saints, and and she started writing. She has a background as a stand-up comic and, um, you know, tattooed from, from head to toe and was using quite a bit of foul language, even in the pulpit at that time, and really made a mark with that. And then some books that she wrote to the point that, there was people within the circles in which I would run in in vocational Christianity here around in the in the Midwest that really saw her as this revolutionary that was finally speaking truth uh, to a number of different kinds of topics in a very irreverent way. But if you spend even a little bit of time reading through some of her theological ideas and thoughts, you can find that they really are inconsistent in in a lot of ways with how the church has understood things. And, and including most recently, she really has become an advocate for a, for a sexual reformation, she calls it. And so she she certainly has a really uh, broad following of people as she, in her own mind, uh, said that she wanted to be sort of the modern-day Martin Luther who banged a bunch of theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel to help reform the church uh, during the Protestant Reformation. She wants to see that kind of reformation socially happen within our country. So that's a bit of her background, for sure. And there's a lot of people who have very much followed her teachings and advocated for what she's saying. Okay, for those of you who don't know what public witness is, it can be dis- dis- described or defined really, really broadly. In um, in the Southern Baptist Convention, you would recognize their public witness efforts through the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So you would historically think of Russell Moore, no longer in that position, but now doing public theology on behalf of Christianity today. So when we talk about public witness, we're talking about the public-facing witness of a denomination or of an entity or institution. Um, and and Nadia Boltz Weber is likened in this article. Her ordination to this post is likened unto the Presbyterian Church USA ordaining Fred Rogers of Mister Rogers' Neighborhood as an evangelist for television um, back in the day. And let me just tell you, um, the neighborhood has really changed. If Nadia mm. Boltz Weber is the new Mister Rogers, yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. And I know that what what drives what seems to be driving her thinking, if you read her her public interviews and what she says, is she says something to the effect of uh, we need to be more concerned with people's well-being than we do with the teachings of the church. And that's a really interesting statement to make, because what she's trying to suggest in that moment is that the teachings of the church have not been helpful to people's well-being, and so uh, we need to we need to pay more much more attention to people's sexual, social, relational well-being as they understand it themselves. And if that means that we do away with some of the historic teachings of the church, then we need to do away from it with them. But I think that that dichotomy that she brings up as this public-facing witness to say we care about your well-being, uh, even if we don't care any longer about the historic teachings of the church. It is this false dichotomy because the teachings of the church, or at least I can say it this way, the, the beautiful witness of Jesus and his kingdom brings well-being to us. And, and certainly I think we can fairly say that the church has represented Jesus in ways and taught about his kingdom in ways that maybe is just flat inconsistent with his kingdom. But, but to do away with the teachings of the church in order to allow people to have their own sense of well-being— is is quite a move as opposed to, you, you were talking about deconstruction, reconstruction at the top of the hour. So much of what we end up doing in the classes that I teach is we go through. So this teaching represents Jesus's kingdom. 
Do we really think that that represents Jesus's kingdom? Do we need to deconstruct that teaching to really find the beauty of his invitation scripturally that maybe we missed because we misunderstood a passage or his teaching or why he was healing somebody or whatever it happens to be? And so I think moving forward with the amount of following that she has, we're going to continue to see this this whole tide move towards your well-being as defined by you is most important. We're not going to listen to the teachings of the church anymore. All right, just so that you guys know, um, it's not just the Rocky Mountain Synod of the ELCA. Every bishop in the ELCA signed off on the appointment of this person to be this pastor of public witness for the ELCA. So she now speaks on behalf of two and four. Every person who is a part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And so if you happen to be in the ELCA, you you need to see who this person is um, and what she is teaching about what the Bible says. So um, there you go. Nadia Bolt Weber. You can check that out. Peter Kapsner and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Pete Buttigieg, his husband, and how they're starting a family. Mm-hmm. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. uh, Great, uh, great comments and feedback um, from those of you engaging on the text line this morning. Remember, you can do so by texting me at Um, 877-933-2484. Peter, let's uh, let's talk about Pete Buttigieg uh, and his family. And uh, when we when we use these terms and we read these headlines that Pete and Chasen Buttigieg say they have become parents, that's the uh, headline as it appears in the Washington Post, but this is a this is a headline that um, that has appeared across pretty much every media outlet in in one way, shape, or form. This is the um, Secretary of Transportation for the United States government um, and his husband, Chasen Buttigieg, uh, talking about adopting a child and quote unquote becoming parents or starting a family, depending on which headline you're reading. So th- I wanted to just pause and remind us that this is not what marriage is according to God's design. This is not what parents, the parenting is according to God's design. And this is not God's design for the family. Yeah, I think that that's so well said, Carmen. I know this, this reminds me of uh, recently Anderson Cooper, one of the anchors of CNN evening news uh, when it was celebrated that he had a child with his partner as well. And, and I was just catching an episode of Brooklyn 999 with uh, my two oldest kids the other day. And, and of course, two of the main characters are uh, it's a gay police officer and his uh, and, and the sergeant are sort of in this groundbreaking, I suppose, gay relationship. And, and you know, I remember I'm going to be standing in the same classroom in about a half an hour that I was standing in some six or seven years ago when the Obergefell Amendment uh, became the law of the land and changed the norms of marriage. And I remember debriefing with my class about that and saying, so here's the deal. When something like this happens, it means that the tsunami of, of sexual change has already swept over us and it has deconstructed everything that we understand about marriage. Now, you won't see that play itself out just yet because we're going to be living, you know, we're still trying to just even get out of the water of the tsunami and understand exactly what happened and how it swept over us. But it has now changed everything. And and, and the buildings and the, and the structures of our sexuality and of our ideas of marriage are already done, even if it's not done. And, and what I meant by that is that everything's going to change in our society moving forward. And so here we are now, some six years, seven years later, and, and we shouldn't be surprised 
suggested that this is what's being celebrated. And I don't think that we should underestimate how this has become the norm in young people's thinking, that, that it is in their zeitgeist, it's in their, their psyche that this is just one version of marriage, that marriage really, it just boils down to trying to find a companion or a partner of any kind with whom you want to do life according to a sense uh, of attraction that you may or may not have. It really has shifted everything where marriage is no longer the invitation of the image-bearing reality of the male and the image-bearing reality of the female that are different in distinct ways from one another and both necessary for the stewarding of God's future uh, as they come together side by side, partnering together. God did something really amazing when he decided to say, here's the deal, male, you are not her, and here's the deal, female, you are not him. But you are both needed uh, to submit to one another in reverence to Christ to help govern this future together. But I have imprinted a certain kind of image in each one of you that you don't have. And so you're both actually necessary. And when we change all of that idea uh, of marriage being a stewardship of God's future towards, I just want to find a companion to for for a lifetime. We've changed from being stewards of God to people who will worship idols created by us. And this is such a much bigger conversation, Carmen. I mean, I I, I joke about my sexuality class, like the, the syllabus is just a suggestion, but I know for sure that we're going to have to spend at least 10 to 15 hours, even Uh, sussing out what I just said about what makes us unique as male and female and how do we work together as God's stewards and what the invitation of marriage really actually is. But we shouldn't be surprised when we see now Buttigieg and his partner having a child, and this is defined as marriage. Um, This is what happened when the tsunami swept over us. And it's really incumbent upon the church to not just say that's wrong, but to then begin to uphold both in teaching, but indeed um, how the the wonderful stewardship of masculinity and femininity is meant to work together, and so there's there's an invitation here, um, but we can, we can either shout at Buttigieg and everything that's going on, or we can just say, hey, we knew this was coming because of the tsunami, and we have to do our own work to reconstruct the beauty of marriage and call people to that with our witness. Yeah, and I don't want people to miss um, Pete, Pete Buttigieg is on the rise. He's not going anywhere. For sure. Um, the infrastructure bill that uh, is in the process of passing both houses of Congress and will be signed into law by the president of the United States um, makes Pete Buttigieg as the uh, as the head of transportation in the United States of America um, really a headline position in uh, in the cabinet and and a real prospect in terms of his aspirations, which are clearly set on the White House. And so when we talk about uh, Pete and Chasen Buttigieg and their family and their adoption of a child or potentially children um, and what that looks like and how that um, is evidence of a changing landscape, not only in the United States of America, but a changing of America's public witness in the world this is a significant point along that way, and I just didn't want us to miss it. Well, and I think that point, too, that you made, Carmen, this ties both of these conversations together. On one end, you're going to see the arm of the church uh, in Nadia Bowles-Weber in at least one denomination, but there are many denominations that are going to be increasingly advocating for this form of marriage. And then you see the other arm of it, the government, in which you see one of the rising stars uh, of a major political party. Certainly, we're going to start talking about the language of a first husband related to the man 
and in the White House as well. And so the, these things are changing, and it doesn't. There is hope. I, I'll tell you what. When we when we teach that which is right and good and true and model it, people start to see a different kind of shalom and peace in the midst of that. That some of this idolatry just can't touch. As understandable as it is, with the with, with the strength of the false teaching that's out there. All right, we've got a um, a listener who is a retiring pastor in the ELCA. So, Paul, check out the uh, text line, and maybe we have an ongoing conversation um, with uh, about what's going on there. All right, Peter, we got to leave it right there. Hey, let's um, let's on behalf of everybody that's starting today at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, um, may I pray for you and your class and others? I would love that. Father, we come before you bearing up um, our brother in Christ, Peter Kapsner, um, the classes that he's going to teach today. Every student who uh, is going to walk into not only those classrooms, but every class at UNW, um, your hand of blessing and guidance and protection. Uh, may the spirit of Christ be present and evident and exchanged and robust. And may each one of these young people grow up in every way into full maturity that you would send them forth um, as ambassadors of your kingdom in the world that you so love. Your grace, Father, we ask this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessings, brother. Thanks, Carmen. Love it. We'll be right back. All right. You may have noticed that the world is on fire and that everybody is fighting about everything. So how do we walk in the wisdom of Christ in the midst of all of that? The book is World on Fire. One of the contributors is Hannah Anderson, and she joins us next. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. God is with us. Prophets weren't enough. Apostles wouldn't do. Angels won't suffice. God sent more than miracles and messages. He sent himself. He sent his son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has been where you are. He can relate to how you feel. And if his life on earth doesn't convince you, his death on the cross should. He understands what you're going through. No one penned it more clearly than did the author of Hebrews. Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. So whenever we are in need, we should come bravely before the throne of our merciful God, and there we will be treated with undeserved kindness, and we will find help. This is Max Lucado. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, burns. All right, Hannah Anderson joins me now. You know her from her website, sometimesalight.com. You know her from her books, All That's Good, um, and she has a brand new book out as well, uh, Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. She's here today to talk with us. Um, about a collaborative project called World on World on Fire, walking in the wisdom of Christ when everyone's fighting about everything. Hannah, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Glad to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So, um, in this book, you and um, and all of your many co-authors, you guys, you know, you talk about these flashpoints that are fracturing fracturing us and how. You know, we just live in an increasingly defensive society. Um, talk with us about how the wisdom of Jesus provides a way forward. 
Right. Um, I think all of the authors are feeling what everyone else is feeling that, you know, the world around us just is, and you can't say anything without it turning into um, a big controversy. And it feels like everything is so combustible. And so we wanted to find out what does the scripture teach us how to be in a combustible environment? How can we be people who contain these fires um, and maybe not start new ones that aren't necessary. And so we went to um, the Sermon on the Mount to kind of see what is Jesus teaching about people who live counterculturally, people who have a different set of values, people who follow in his way, and what would that mean for the way they engage in controversial subjects or difficult conversations? It doesn't mean that there aren't differences, but that there's a way of being within these debates. There's a way of modeling Christ-likeness that will set us apart in our witness and our testimony to the world. So this was a collaborative effort. Um, and I'm wondering, did you put this group of uh, of extraordinary women together to write this? I did not. All credit goes to Ashley Gorman um, at B&H Publishers, who brainstormed this idea and saw the need for it and, and really wanted to provide a resource to groups in churches, groups of women particularly, who found that maybe their relationships were being strained by differences of opinions and wanted a way to be able to learn together how to um, model Christ-likeness even within the midst of that. All right. So um, I love the application um, portions of each of this. I love that there really are, there. you know, the book is designed not just to be read as an individual, but really to be read in community. Um, each chapter ends with this looking in, looking up, looking out, looking ahead, and then um, and then a prayer. Uh, if you are saying to yourself right now, wow, I really need help with that. I'd love to have a copy of World on Fire, Walking in the Wisdom of Christ when everyone's fighting about everything. We're giving away copies today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. Um, Hannah, talk with us um, about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, because I really feel like when you um, and the other authors dig into the Beatitudes as these like signposts for our counterintuitive, go against the grain way of walking in Christ, that's really what the that seems to be the ground you're tilling the 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 difference between knowledge or information and real wisdom. Absolutely. And a lot of what we've kind of based the initial approach on is found in in the book of James, where James talks about the tongue being able to spark a fire. And that's the image of the world on fire, that our tongues have the ability to set entire forests ablaze, um, the way James puts it. But just a few verses from that, he talks about heavenly wisdom. And he contrasts that to the way the world walks in uh, their knowledge. And, And the knowledge Knowledge of the world, it, it may sound right or it may make sense, but it has a different goal. Um, and the knowledge of the world is I, I want to be right. I want to prove my strength. I want to know what is right and, and kind of divide people because I am right. Whereas the heavenly wisdom, the wisdom that comes down from heaven, is peaceable and it is aimed toward reconciliation. Not conflict avoidance, but but true reconciliation. It is aimed at um, 
presenting the gospel of Christ. It is aimed at presenting God's love. And it also has the ability to discern when and how to go about that. And so when we make this contrast um, between heavenly wisdom and the kind of earthly wisdom or earthly knowledge that James talks about, it is as much about why and how you go about saying what you know, not just what you know. I, that is so important. It is how you go about saying what you know, not just saying what you know. Um, that is so that is so just so critical, right? I can know the mind of Christ. I can even figure out, you know, how to apply the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. But if I communicate that in a way that is not Christ-like, is you know, if I if I'm trying to communicate the love and the grace of God, and I'm doing so in ways that are not loving um, or not grace-filled, then the message is not received. Absolutely. And I think about it even in my parenting, you know, like when you yell at your children to stop yelling, um, we have to <laughs> what? embody. What? Who does that? Who, who has right. ever done I, wh- What? <laughs> I, I felt like when we put this book together and the subtitle was Walking in Wisdom When Everyone's Fighting About Everything, I was like, well, welcome to my house where everyone's mm-hmm. fighting about everything. But but it is true that so often we fall into the same patterns that we're trying to correct. And what this book is a call to is to embody um, the wisdom of Christ in our reactions and responses, not just in our thoughts or positions, um, because we want to testify to the goodness of God and the truth of the gospel by our actions as much as by our words. All right. I'm talking with Hannah Anderson. Um, She is one of a group of authors uh, behind World on Fire, Walking in the Wisdom of Christ When Everyone's Fighting About Everything. You can visit with Hannah at sometimesalight.com. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies of the book we're giving away today, text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. You've walked me through fire. Hannah Anderson is one of the authors of World on Fire, Walking in the Wisdom of Christ When Everyone's Fighting About Everything. Um, Hannah, your chapter um, is on meekness, meekness in a world of pride. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And you talk about the the mistake that a hot take um, can be. Uh, so in the culture, you know, right, everything's on fire. A hot take is what? And Maybe share with us the experience of a hot take proving to be a mistake. Right. So the hot take is that quick response to whatever news item has just um, passed through your your feed, whether it's on social media or something someone is sharing. And what's really difficult about social media is that it rewards hot takes. It actually encourages us to give our initial gut response without thinking. It wants the clicks and the likes and the shares. And so we're in an environment that is actually kind of encouraging us to not be thoughtful. And it's very easy to fall prey to it. And I know there have been times when I saw something come through my feed and I'm like, oh, that is so wrong. I can't believe that person would think that. And I'll jump in to either correct or maybe share it with my little commentary that explains why it's so wrong. And it has happened more than once where I have eventually with time been the one proven wrong. 
that my initial response, my initial gut feeling or belief that I could correct this person, ultimately, when all the facts came in and the dust settled, that I was the one that was incorrect. And I think cultivating this spirit of meekness is cultivating a disposition that says, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe there's something I can learn from this person. Um, maybe my initial response of discomfort or frustration is rooted in something else rather than um, this particular post. Because I think that also happens too, is we read something and something's going on in our life privately. And we think that thing is directed right at us, that this person is speaking right at us. And they're not. Um, maybe they're just making a general comment, but we feel it very personally. And so what meekness does is it pulls us back. It humbles us long enough to say, maybe I don't know everything yet. Maybe I need to pause. Maybe I need to listen. Maybe I need to learn um, before I respond. And, and again, it's not saying that we can all just get along and there aren't disagreements. It's more about how we engage with those disagreements and just lowering the temperature by being willing to be humble enough to learn from each other. I think the humility part of this is huge. I think the willingness to um, humble ourselves, not only before the Lord, but before others is a big part of this. Um, and that's hard to do. It's necessary, but it's really hard to do. It's, you know, it's as hard as apologizing to our kids that we yell at them for yelling, right? Like I, I have to then circle back around and I have to say, um, I'm sorry that I made some assumptions based on the situation. I'm sorry that I allowed my anger to lead me to raise my voice um, because you were raising your voice. And I recognize you were raising your voice now because you were frustrated or you were afraid or whatever, you know. And so I think that um, one of the really helpful parts of this book is that you know, every chapter is just written by a real person dealing with real issues in a real household. And so maybe just take us into sort of how you are seeking to walk in the wisdom of Christ in your own home. Hmm. Well, I think you make such a good point about being willing to apologize and admit wrong, um, because we can be right perhaps, and um, do it wrongly, but we also mm. can be wrong <laughs> and do it wrongly. And I think there's nothing, um, at least in my experience, more humbling than to have to go to the people you live with most closely and apologize or admit wrong. But there's a particular grace there as well, because these people love you. Um, these people have been with you. They know you well. And so we have the opportunity to practice with each other. And so with my own children, we are practicing these virtues. If we can do it and learn to do it in a safe place, maybe we'll build the muscle that we can do it more outside of our home. And so I see a lot of what we're doing as a family um, in parenting as preparation for future relationships um, that we have um, that we would come into. And so learning to apologize, to admit wrong, to receive grace from each other, to, to be forgiven will really stand us in good stead down the road. Are people in your community fighting about um, anything related to kids in school today? 
Like, is that happening in your community at all? Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. And what I think I see a lot of is people love their children deeply and desperately. And there's a lot of fear right now. We don't know um, the best way out. We don't know what to do. And so emotions and anxiety are really high right now. And I think one of the things we all have to recognize is that everyone's just trying to do their best for the most part. Um, And we're in a very stressful, anxious time. And part of giving grace doesn't mean that we just all agree about everything, but it means seeing the person on the other side and seeing them as someone made in God's image and recognizing that they're under a great deal of duress and stress themselves. And a lot of our responses whether we want them to or not, are flowing out of that kind of anxiety. And so even something like schooling issues, um, if we can learn to see each other as people made in the image of God, trying to do our best, maybe we can start to build some bridges just of care and kindness with each other. Hannah, we appreciate um, what you're doing each and every day. Um, Give people a little window into your other brand new book. Yeah, so um, my other book is Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. And this was kind of my attempt to bring together my love for the natural world with scripture. And Mm -hmm. so it's taking a lot of the imagery within the Bible that talks about the way God has made the world um, and what we can see in the world and kind of building it out and saying that the same God who made everything we love in creation, um, whether it's the waterfalls or the the flowers, is the same God who wrote the scripture. And he's teaching us the same thing in different ways. And he's being very clear and explicit in the scripture, but within nature, he is showing us in picture form um, who he is and what he desires for us. And so that's that book. It's just bringing together some different threads in my life and being able to communicate um, who this God is. Hannah lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. So she, um, she is exposed to some of the best parts of nature each and every day. Um, Sometimesalight.com is where you can find Hannah and where you can find Turning of Days. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies of World on Fire, Walking in the Wisdom of Christ When Everyone's Fighting About Everything, um, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Hannah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, it is National Dog Day, which is why Paul's playing all the dog music today. There you go. Um, All right, so here's a quick update on Afghanistan. It's not good. Um, Efforts by Turkey, the nation of Turkey. um, Turkey had been in negotiations with the Taliban to take over from the U.S. military in order that the airport in Kabul would remain open following August the 31st. Those um, negotiations and talks have failed. The Turks have left Um, And the Turks will at this point not be taking over from the U.S. military. So now there is no prospect um, currently for there to be any sort of peaceful transition at the Kabul airport um, following the full departure of the United States at the end of the day on August the 31st. That's bad news. Um, And here is how Russia is already responding. Russia has begun evacuating their people out of Afghanistan 
um, as the security situation deteriorates. Four Russian military aircraft have now evacuated some 500 Russian and Central Asian nationalists from Afghanistan uh, just on Wednesday under orders from President Vladimir Putin. The move marks a shift in um, Russia's stance in Afghanistan, um, which, uh, yeah, that none of this is good news. And so um, I don't know what to say other than we need to be praying ardently for a peace to come that is from outside of the ability of human beings to negotiate. Um, and so I'm going to pray that God's peace would somehow pervade the situation there and that innocent people would not be um, not be lost in the midst of all of this. So let's be praying for the evacuations which will take place today and for the desperation of people um, who are ultimately trapped in a very bad situation. We trust God. Uh, he is sovereign. He is good. He is gracious. Let us each and everyone do our part as well. I know you're tending to the fires in your own hearts and homes and communities today. So I'm praying for you. You be praying for me. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.